Before I get to my next guest, John Mahaffey, I want to remind you about a few of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Squares Golf. Are you like me, always considering new golf equipment, maybe a new driver? Well, let me reset your thinking because I discovered Squares Golf Shoes. The patented square toe provides balance, stability, and a wider base for increased connection to the ground, effectively increasing your swing speed by 2.2 miles per hour and an average of 9 yards of distance. Independent testing proves it. That's right. It's proven in science. Go to squares.com. That's S-Q-A-I-R-Z.com and get Squares 30-day money-back guarantee. Use promo code DISTANCE for $20 off. Remember, distance comes from swing speed and swing speed comes from your connection to the ground. And folks, I wouldn't tell you about it if I didn't experience it for myself. I've never felt more stable in my golf swing, which allows me to swing faster and launch it further. Squares, the distance golf shoe. I also want to remind you about our friends over at Bionic Gloves. Whether you're looking to own the golf greens, improve your workouts, or get your hands dirty in the garden, Bionic Gloves have you covered. Designed with a hand specialist, Bionic Gloves feature patented innovations that help improve your grip. The strategically placed anatomical relief pads also help prevent calluses and blisters, while the web and motion zones allow for greater dexterity and flexibility. Head over to BionicGloves.com to find the perfect glove to up your game. And this segment of the show is sponsored by our friends over at Zexio. In 2001, Zexio Strixon began making clubs for men and women, and they've improved on those clubs every year since. I was fit for a set of Zexio 10 irons by a great fitter on their staff. He got me dialed in, and they feel and perform fantastically. They are light. I've picked up nearly 5 miles per hour in swing speed and they're deadly accurate. Every part of Zexio clubs are made exclusively for Zexio. Everything is light and balanced. Swing weights are made to give us the highest smash factor. And the best part of getting fit for Zexio clubs is hitting it higher and straighter than ever before, changing your game. Zexio clubs are a Golf Digest hot list gold winner for 2021. NB Park is a Zexio ambassador, as are Ernie Els and top instructor Martin Hall. See why and how Zexio can help your game as well. Go online to ZexioUSA.com, that's X-X-I-O-USA.com, and pick which set is right for you. Okay, now next on the tee with me is 1978 PGA champion John Mahaffey. Let me give you some background on John. He's from Kerrville, Texas, played his college golf at the University of Houston. He was named a first-team All-American in 1969 and 70. John won the individual title at the 1970 National Championship, and he helped the Cougars to -to back-to-back national championships in 1969 and 70. He earned his degree in psychology, and he was inducted into their Athletics Hall of Fame in 1976. John turned pro in 71. He won 10 times on the PGA Tour, including that 1978 PGA Championship. When he came from seven strokes back with 14 holes to play to win in a playoff. He also won the 1986 Players Championship. He won once out on the Champions Tour and he was a member of the 1979 Ryder Cup team. In 1983, he was inducted into the Texas Golf Hall of Fame and I am very excited to have him with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, John, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Chris, great to be with you. And hey, I love Dottie Pepper. She is so good. Man, is that woman got some talent. Yeah, I think you're going to talk about it from a from an athletic standpoint and then over to the broadcasting booth. I mean, you guys had very similar 
careers. You had a great college career, won several times, won a national championship. You translate over onto the PGA Tour and the Champions Tour and then over to the broadcasting booth and you guys actually spent some time together. I told Dottie this is sort of like the six degrees of Keith Hirschland because Keith is the one that introduced <laughs> us and uh, and Dottie and I know you work with uh, both of them at the at the Golf Channel as well. Talk about that time that uh, that the three of you uh, spent working together. Well, it was really great because she's a true professional and she does her homework and uh, she's not uh, doesn't have any problem stating her opinion and I love that in a, in in a player and also in a broadcaster uh, and I think Keith. Uh, helped mold us both into a lot better broadcasting too. Uh, I remember when I first came on the Golf Channel, Keith was the one that, uh, finally got me. My wife wanted me to do it for years. I wasn't playing very well on the Champions Tour and, uh, Keith finally convinced me to come on there. And, uh, my deal with the Golf Channel is every time they would come to me, Chris, I'd go, I tell you what, guys, I tell you what, guys. So Keith kept saying, look, everybody's got to go to you got to get rid of that. You know, nobody likes to hear that every time they come to you. So, <laughs> I'm we're, I, we'd go about two or three weeks, and I, we might have even been in Hawaii, I'm not sure, but <laughs> Keith comes to me, and I said, I tell you what, guys, and I hear in my ear while I'm talking, John, if I hear that one more time, I want you to put the mic down, I want you to put your clipboard down, and walk in, you're done. Now, that's how you break somebody of a bad habit. And uh, <laughs> But he taught me how to do so, so many of the really great things. Uh, what makes good television? Uh, a guy has an unfortunate happening on the 72nd hole or 54th hole, uh, on the Champions Tour and it costs him the golf tournament, not by his fault. Hits a sprinkler head, goes out of bounds or whatever. And, uh, you don't really feel like going over and interviewing the guy because he feels bad enough. But being a player, he said, look, you can go in there and you can talk to him because he knows you know and he'll make great television. So I think that's when you have a really great producer make you a better announcer. John, I want to go back to the beginning for you and, and uh, talk about your college golf at the University of Houston. I'm, I'm curious, as a kid from Kerrville, Texas, which is a little north of San Antonio, I'm sure all the big Texas schools and those schools around the, around Texas in that region were all after you. Why Houston? Well, actually, they weren't after me. That's the problem. Uh, or, well, what happened was I was a better basketball player in high school than I was a golfer, to be honest with you. And I had several scholarships to play college basketball, not in big schools or anything, but, uh, but I was on the golf team and I'd won, uh, a lot of, of uh, high school golf tournaments and I won our district, regional, and state my senior year. Uh, and I actually, um, uh, and lost to Terry Jastrow, uh, who actually went to the University of Houston at the same time I did the following year, uh, in a Texas State junior. And I had uh, written a letter to the University of Texas and written a letter to uh, Texas Tech wanting to see if I could walk on and try to, to play on their on their team, but I never got a response. Well, with the way Terry and I both played in the Texas State junior, uh, then we both got uh, calls from Coach Dave Williams wanting us to come down and be part of the freshman team and try to make the, the University of Houston team. So uh, that's basically how I got on there. And Hal Underwood, who was like a two- or three-time All-American at the University of Houston a couple of times on national championship teams, uh, he and I played against each other a couple of times in uh, high school when he was a senior and I was like a sophomore. And um, 
he's the one that that got me into the university. He used to tell, uh, I made like forty points in a basketball game one time. Coach Williams said, "Well, if a little kid like you can make forty points in a basketball game, you got to have a big heart, and that's what we like here at University of Houston: a big heart." So that's how I got in. Wow. John, talk about that 1969-1970 team. You had a lot of talent on that team, obviously winning a national championship. But you had Tom Jenkins on that team. He would go on to win once on the PGA Tour and seven times on the Champions Tour. Bruce Litsky was a member of that team. We all know what a great career he had. Joe Stensick, Corker DeLoach, who was a three-time All-American. Arthur Russell, who was a national junior champion before coming to Houston. Bruce Ashworth was a heck of a match play player. Kip Putterbaugh, who is a, has a great academy out in Carlsbad, California now and is one of the top 100 instructors in the game. Dave Schuster on that team. Talk about playing alongside of those guys. Well, there were a lot more than that, actually, that went to University of Houston. I think that was our strong point. And that's why Dave Williams had such great teams, because he recruited so well. Junior champions from all over the country and even all over the world. And uh, Joe Stensick, for instance, he did a stint in the Army and came back out and went to school. So he had a lot of experience uh, in the real world as well. So he had, we had a, a bunch of well-rounded guys, and you played, and you qualified all the time. We were playing golf constantly. We came to school two uh, months, uh, two months, two weeks before school started, and we were playing 36 holes a day, qualifying, qualifying, playing tournaments. And uh, the first meeting we had, I remember, all we talked about was, winning the NCAA, the NCAA. We've got to be NCAA champions. We've got a record to keep up. We've got to be part of this University of Houston pride and, and do this uh, and, and win national championships. That's what we do here. And when they, it's beat into you the entire time here at the University of Houston, when you get to the NCAA and you're on, on, the, on the University of Houston team, you're ready to play. And uh, I think that's why we were so successful. And we had so many wonderful players that, uh, there were no slouches that were, that were there. So, uh, to make that team, you really had to play well. And he, coach never pushed it. Coach wasn't a teacher, but he, he took the guys that wanted it the most. John, like you mentioned in 1969, you win the first of your back to back team national championships at Broadmoor Golf Club. Now you're a member of that great tradition, bringing home a national championship. What was that experience like for you? Well, actually, the, the year before, Chris, we lost by, I think, a shot or two. Sorry, a shot or two at uh, Las Cruces. And I was a member of that team and shot like 65 the last round. And to lose by two, you know, it was, it was heartbreaking for us. Plus, I was the youngest guy on the team and had to, and we drove everywhere. So I'm in the station wagon with Dave Williams driving all the way back to Houston. And he's telling me why we should, why I should never play again, why our teams are so rotten and all this kind of stuff because we lost an NCAA. Uh, he'd, he'd like to, to kind of give it to you if, if you, if you didn't perform. And, uh, so when, when we won the NCAA in, uh, Broadmoor, we beat, uh, and we beat Wake Forest, who had three or four of the Walker Cup players, uh, for that, that particular year, uh, on that team. So, uh, it was really kind of a, a feather in our ass to do that. And it was a wonderful thing to get the tradition going again. Uh, and then when we went to the, the next year, in uh, Ohio State at Scarlet, uh, I was playing some of the best golf I'd ever played. Tied for low, low USM, low amateur in the U.S. Uh, Open the week before with Ben Cross, uh, Ben Crenshaw at uh, Hazeltine, and uh, came in there feeling really good and beat Lanny Watkins by a shot, which 
he never let me forget to this day that uh, it's the only amateur <laughs> tournament that he did win during his illustrious career. So, you know, and I, I actually actually chipped in uh, 10 times on the back nine, which is totally impossible. But, you wow. know, just to make it, <laughs> no, I didn't, but I chipped in a couple of times on him. But anyway, uh, it was, it was great going to the University of Houston because it, <clears throat> uh, first of all, it, it, uh, it taught you how to travel. It taught you what to do on the road, taught you what tournament golf was, what pressure was, because you had to qualify to qualify to get in. And then you had to play well on the team to stay there. So it was sort of like a mini tour before the mini tours were around. And, uh, it was, it was really cool going there. And, uh, there was tradi- tradition. We didn't have, we weren't allowed to join fraternities. We were our own fraternity. And John, you turned pro the following year in 1971, and you're coming out onto the PGA Tour during the prime years of guys, you know, like Jack Nicklaus's career, Lee Trevino, Gary Player, Arnold Palmer still winning. Hale Irwin is now out there on tour. J.C. Snead, Johnny, I mean, the legends of the game are out there and they're winning on the PGA Tour. And now you're coming out and being a part of that group. What was it like trying to make your way on tour when you're playing up against those guys every week? Well, there again, I had a lot of experience uh, playing uh, in the, the collegiate deal. Uh, Hubert Green uh, was a good friend of mine, and, and he was a, a rookie the year before I came on the tour and won the tournament uh, in Houston uh, at Champions, uh, beat Don January in a playoff. So, you know, I always I had the feeling, and Landy was on our uh, was on the uh, my rookie year. He was he was the guy that went through the qualifying school together with me. Tom Watson was there. David Graham. So we played against a lot of really tough competition getting in, and I uh, kind of knew what it, what everything was about. And, and luckily, when I was at, uh, I worked for Jimmy Demerit and Jackie Burke at Champions after I graduated from Houston. Uh, they'd give you that opportunity if you thought you wanted to go on the tour. Uh, and, uh, let you teach a little bit and sell golf balls from, uh, you know, behind the counter and, uh, let you know that you probably didn't want to do that if you wanted to, to play tour golf because it, uh, kind of got in the way, uh, of, of practice and playing. And through, uh, Jimmy Demerit, who was Ben Hogan's best friend, uh, I learned how to play golf in Kerrville, Texas out of Ben Hogan's book, the, uh, the five lessons, the fundamentals of golf. I didn't have any professional teaching. So, uh, and thanks to, uh, Jimmy Demerit, I, I got to meet and play with Ben Hogan at Champions, uh, before I went on the tour. Uh, it was after I'd won the NCAA and obviously in the full amateur in, in the U.S. Open, but <clears throat> Hogan took a liking to me and put me on his staff before I ever had a, um, a tour card. And sent me up to Canada to play in the Canadian tour and, uh, really, uh, took me under his wing. He was my mentor for almost 20 years. So I, I, uh, I had, a, I had, I'd been exposed to, to a lot of greatness early on. Let's put it that way. And you mentioned the story about getting to, to play uh, at champions with Mr. Hogan. I read the story that you played nine holes with him during a practice round there and you actually beat him by a stroke. What do you remember about that? Well, what I remember about it is I was working in the pro shop and, and the, all the other assistant pros that weren't going to go, trying to go on the tour were kind of jealous and stuff because I got a chance to go play and practice and stuff like that. So one of them called me up one night and said, uh, Mr. DeMarino wanted me to call you and ask you if you'd like to play with his, as his partner tomorrow against Ben Hogan and, uh, Jackie Burke, uh, at nine o'clock. And 
he knew that I'd learned how to play out of Hogan's book, and Hogan was was my idol and my hero and the guy that I tried to, to swing most like, you know, same build and everything. So I thought it was a big joke until I showed up the next morning at 8 o'clock, and there they were, uh, down on the right side of the practice tee, and I went immediately over to the left, scared to death, you now handshaking the whole deal. So uh, finally they waved me over to the first tee, and uh, I, I get to meet Ben Hogan for the first time. And uh introduced myself. I'm John Mahaffey. He says, I'm Ben Hogan. I'm kind of going, no kidding. You know, and his hands are so big and so strong, you know, and he's got on the white hat and the crisp, crisp iron, uh, light blue shirt, gray slacks. You know, the, the shine on his shoes was perfect, you know, and, uh, he just looked like there's no way he could miss a golf shot. So we, we, we are, Demir and I are playing Hogan and, and, uh, and Burke. So we did play nine holes because a big thunderstorm came up and we had to, had to stop. And, uh, I shot 31 actually on the front nine and he shot 34. So we go in, uh, in the locker room and I walk, I go up to the, to the bar where Cleve, the locker room attendant is. And I sit up there and Demerit's locker is very close to the bar, which is pretty apropos. That's where, uh, best position for him to be close to the bar. <laughs> and he and, uh, he and Burke and, uh, and Ben Hogan were sitting, you know, and kind of huddled up and they talked a little bit. And then Hogan would raise his, his head and look over at me. And then Merrick would look over at me and Cleve looked at me and said, what did, what did you do? And I said, I don't know what I did. He said, well, what did you shoot? I said, 31. He said, what Hogan shoot? I said, 34. He said, oh boy. You know, like that. And I thought, well, I thought I was supposed to try to play good and all that. So anyway, Hogan <laughs> walks over. And he says, uh, hey, young man, do you want to play golf tomorrow? And I'm, I'm an assistant. I look over at Mr. Dwork and, and Mr. Demerity and they shake their head yes. So I, same time, same deal. Then that night it rained like crazy. And, uh, Champions was probably the Cypress course was the longest golf course on the tour anyway. And it was just so, really soaked and it rained, uh, it rained, the wind came out of the north. I mean, it just blew hard as heck and it, it was tough. And, uh, I shot 70, Hogan shot 69. So, and we were playing for some money, which I didn't have, but the, one of the members was going to kind of back me if I needed it. So anyway, they go through this same routine up. I'm, sta- I'm sitting at the bar talking to Cleve and, uh, Mr. Hogan walks over and says, uh, John. And so now he knows my name and he says, well, you're going to have dinner at the club tonight, right? Well, back then. He really assistants didn't have dinner at the club that often, and one of the mem- members said, "Yeah, he's having dinner with us tonight." So Hogan said, "Okay, be there at seven. So I'm sitting at a table at seven. He walks over, and he's uh, he leans over. He said, uh, "John, how would you like to play in Colonial next week in Fort Worth?" And I said, "Mr. Hogan, I'd I'd love to, but I'm not not a member of the tour." And he goes, "I know." You're not a member of the tour. But I wanted to know, do you want to play in the tournament next week at Fort Worth? And I said, yes, I'd love to. So he goes, makes a phone call in to Ben Burke's office, comes back. He says, you're in. Uh, one stipulation. He says, you have to play all your practice rounds with me, and I'm going to teach you how to play the golf course. Just me alone, first off. So here I am. Hogan's my mentor, beginning to be my mentor. He's my hero. He's uh, wanted Colonial five times, Hogan's Alley, and he's going to teach me how to play the golf course. And he's got me in the golf course, got me in the tournament uh, as an, with an exemption. 
So uh, I go to the tournament. We play all the practice rounds, and it's wonderful. To, he didn't teach me. He never taught me how to. He never taught me how to swing. He taught me how to play golf. Is what Hogan did. Uh, he liked my swing because obviously I tried to copy his. Copy his, but he uh, he taught me how to manage myself around the golf course, what to do, how to play shots, uh, to be creative, be innovative, and uh, and not to be afraid and, and not to be one dimensional. To have a go-to shot, he taught me all these things that it's not just teaching you how to swing a golf club. So I play the practice rounds with him, and and a tournament starts, and he's not there. I don't see him. I make the cut. I'm playing pretty good. Play good on Saturday. I'm in the hunt. Got a possible chance to win the golf tournament going in the last night, and shoot something like 39 or 40, and finish tied for 12. With Gene Little, I'll never forget that. So anyway, I'm back at my Holiday Inn in Fort Worth, packing up and going to get back on the Interstate 45 and drive back down to Houston. Pretty dejected, really, because, you know, here I had a chance to win a tournament and really prove something to the man that uh, that means an awful lot to me then. Uh, you know, just to begin with, the guy that basically taught me how to play golf out of a book. And uh, so the phone rang. And it's Mr. Hogan. He says, uh, John, do you know where the Hogan factory is? I said, no, sir, I don't. He says, it's on West Pafford. Find it. Be there at 10 o'clock in the morning. So I'm there at 10 o'clock in the morning. The door's open. I go in and I sit down in this chair that's about 30 feet below his, his desk, it seems like. And, uh, Hogan smokes a lot. And he, uh, took it, opened the drawer, took out a pack of cigarettes, put a cigarette in his mouth and smoked the entire thing just staring at me. And I'm getting smaller and smaller and smaller and wondering what the hell is going on. <laughs> and uh, he puts the cigarette out, opens another drawer, hands, and takes out two pieces of paper, hands me one of them. He says, this is a contract. I want you to represent me on the PGA Tour. He said, I want you to represent the Van Hogan Company. And I said, but Mr. H I know you're not a member of the PGA Tour, but you will be because I've already got you until two weeks from now. I'm going to send you up to, uh, you're going to drive from Houston to Winnipeg and you're going to play west all the way to, to vet through, uh, Calgary and Vancouver on the Peter Jackson tour, the Canadian tour. And you're going to learn how to, you, you just don't have enough experience. You're going to have to learn how to travel, how to better. You're going to have to know how to play in different conditions and, uh, get used to a little more pressure, you know, which was, was terrific. And, uh, and also Gene Sheely, my club maker is going to make all your clubs. Nothing is going to come out of here, uh, this factory that I don't see first. And he's coming to approve all of it. So, uh, you're going to wear the clothes, the hat, play the ball, the whole deal. So, uh, and he said, you're the first one I've ever asked to do this. And I thought, oh my goodness, <laughs> that's not a lot of pressure, is it? And, uh, anyway, I went up to Canada, played all right, uh, went to PG qualifying school after that. And he's, and, uh, Hogan sent, uh, Gardner Dickinson to follow me every round to make sure that I wasn't doing any, making any stupid moves. And, uh, got through the tour school and, uh, then that, that kind of established, uh, I guess, uh, an almost 20 year mentorship by him. And, uh, I learned a lot of golf from that man and I learned a lot about, uh, life as well. Just, uh, and he was a wonderful man to me. Everybody thought he was so hard. Uh, but he wasn't to me. He was one of the kindest people I've ever been around. Yeah. So talk about that. It's interesting because I, I've heard. Sort of what you just said, that he was a really hard man, didn't talk a lot, didn't really speak to too many people, uh, man a few words, and um, it seemed like it was the exact opposite 
with you. Why do you think that was? Well, I think he liked my work ethic. He think I, I think he thought I was going to be maybe a second coming of him in a way. Uh, it looked like there was a lot of potential there, and uh, I, I kind of I I, <laughs> I kind of messed that up in in the middle of my career. But uh, I I think he, he saw the the potential to do uh, some some really good things. In fact, uh, my second year on tour, I won in Las Vegas, and that got me in. That was in 1973, and 19. So I played the 1974 Masters, and Hogan gave me his diagram book that he made for Augusta. He wasn't he wasn't playing Augusta anymore. His legs just wouldn't take it. Not even practice rounds or anything. So I I went. Uh, he said, "I want you to take this book, and I want you. This is how he, I want you to play the golf course, basically." So uh, you know, I, I played the practice rounds using it and everything, and noticed that on the third hole, everything was in black, you know, black pencil or pen, except the third hole. And, and he had written in red on the third hole, whatever you do, do not hit driver off the tee at three. Three was fine. Uh, at, at the time, obviously, the ball didn't go as far. We didn't hit it as far as guys do today. He says, three will keep you short of the bunkers. You know, bogey's not a bad score on this hole, but you can make a whole lot bigger number if you hit it in the bunkers and that kind of stuff. Anyway, so I used that in the first round I play, uh, I play in the afternoon and the greens are hard and everything and I shoot 69. Uh, was pretty good for a rookie. And, uh, so I'm off early the next day. I go out and I birdie one and I birdie two. Now I'm tied for the lead. All right. And I'm thinking, now I'm thinking green jacket. So, uh, I get to the third hole and what do I do? I pull out driver because I'm better than mm. Hogan, right? So I take this driver out and I, I take it right at the left corner, right at the right corner of the left bunker and it's cutting. And I'm thinking, heck, that's great. You know, it's going to kick right down in the fairway. I didn't realize that there was a slope that went the opposite way. The ball hit that slope, kicked in that bunker, and I made seven. All right. And I proceed to miss the cut by a shot. So now I'm in the locker room after it's all over and I'm again hanging my head. And, uh, I get this phone call and it's from him. He just said so a couple of things. Like he said, basically, he hit driver at three, didn't you? And I said, yes, sir. And he slammed the phone down. And I didn't talk to him for two months. Or he didn't talk to me for two months. So he finally got it resolved. And I figured out that the guy probably knew what he was talking about. <laughs> I better pay attention, which I did from then on. Uh, one time he asked me to come into his office. Uh, before the uh, year was going to begin, I got the schedule for the for the upcoming year. So it's got like 45 tournaments on it. So he says, bring your schedule. I want, I want to talk to you about this. So I go in there and he says, uh, all right, I want you to take this pencil and I want you to circle or check off your favorite tournaments. So I go through there and I, and I played a pretty heavy schedule. So I check off about my favorites, maybe 20 tournaments and a little less than half. So I hand it back up to him. So he takes it and he looks at it and he tears it up. He throws it in the garbage can. He looked at him. He says, as good as you play, he says, you ought to, every one of those golf courses are, ought to be your favorite. Every one of those tournaments ought to be your favorite. There's not one single tournament there that you can't win. And you've got to think that way. And that's the way he thought. That's the way he played. And he emphasized stuff like that, which I think is so important to play really tough and competitive golf. John, let's talk about some happier memories, at least from a winning perspective. 
1978, you opened the PGA Championship at Oakmont with a round of 75, followed by fantastic rounds of 67, 68, and 66. You had some experience playing Oakmont because the 1969 U.S. Amateur was held there and you played in that event. But Tom Watson had a five-stroke lead going into the final round over Jerry Pate. You were seven strokes back and still seven strokes back with 14 holes left in the tournament. At what point did you start to think, you know what? Hey, I still got a shot to win this thing. Well, I think the big turnaround was I, I uh, after the 75, I went down to the practice tee. I played in the morning that day, and I didn't play particularly well. And I hadn't played well all year. I'd only made like $10,000 up to that point. So I went to the practice tee, and I did. I skipped lunch. I stayed down there till dark. And I thought that I might have found something. I mean, golfers do that a lot. I think I've got it now kind of deal. But this time I really felt like it because it felt like something I could repeat. And I didn't have to think about it so much. It felt good. So for the next three rounds, I did. I played that way. And it's the best tee to green I've ever played. And I putted marvelously that week. Uh, I don't think I, I might have had. I had one three putt that I remember. And that was on 16 that final round. But uh I played well on the front nine. And Tom Watson played sort of so-so, and I might have picked up a shot or two, but then I remember getting to 10, and uh Tom was having some trouble. I think he hit a bad tee shot in the rough and hit it short, hit it on the front of the green. Anyway, he pre-putts and makes six. I hit it in the fairway, knocked it on the front of the green, and the pin was way in the back left, and I had to play this big old sweeping, hooking putt, and I made it from 60 feet, so there's a three-shot swing right there. Then I buried the next hole, and then bury the uh, part of the next, bury the one after that. So now all of a sudden, I'm I'm starting to catch up a little bit. Watson's making a bogey here or there. Uh, so by the time we get to 18, uh, Tom and I are tied, and we're one shot behind Jerry Pate, who's playing in front of us. So Tom and I both drove in the fairway at 18. Uh, I was away, and we're watching Jerry Pate, and uh, really can't tell much. Uh, the green's a little bit elevated, as you know, so you really can't tell much of what's going on up there, but you see, you hear the crowd go, ooh, like that. So you know he's missed a short putt. But we didn't know if it was a birdie for par or whatever. Anyway, we found out that he made bogey, missed a three and a half footer for par. And so Tom and I both, uh, had decent second shots behind the hole and awfully quick coming down the hill. So you can't be overly aggressive. So we make par, uh, go to the first hole, uh, for a playoff. Um, and it's, um, sudden death. And we all made pars in different ways. I think I got it up and down. The other two hit the green two put it. So I had the, I had the honor when we, we drew it uh, on the first hole. So I had the honor at the second. And it's a, a short par four with a creek down the left, bunkers on the right, heavy rough right. And probably the fastest green in the world, I'm thinking. Uh, from front to back, uh, or back to front, sorry. It's just, it's like a ski slope. And they had the whole location on a little shelf in the back left. And I thought, this is my really good chance. Both these guys are hitting a whole lot further than I do. And the golf course doesn't get any shorter than this right here. I'm just going to be aggressive. So I took out a three wood and knocked it down uh, between the water and the, the creek and the bunker. They both took out irons and laid it further back. And Pate missed the green. Watson hit it on the front right. So I've got an, an eight iron in my hand. Uh, and, and I can hit a little draw and put it in by that pin. So I think it's about 12 feet left of the hole. Heck of a shot. Tate makes bogey. Watson puts it up and leaves it about 10 feet short. And I had 
maybe the fastest putt Chris I've ever had in my life to look at this thing. I'm not for sure I even breathed on it. And didn't have a whole lot of break, kept to the inside left. And it's one of those that you pick out a spot about, you know, three or four inches in front of your ball. And if you roll it over that, you figure you got a good chance. Well, this ball went right over the top of that and dead center. And I don't remember much after that because I was airborne. <laughs> Yeah, I was sort of curious, you know, what what does it feel like when that putt disappears? That's got to be just uh, the most wonderful elation, you know, of your golf career outside of probably winning the national championship. Well, see, the thing is, in 1975, I lost the U.S. Open in an 18-hole playoff with Lou Graham at Medina. In 1976, I lost the U.S. Open to Jerry Pate on the 18th hole, and he made birdie at Atlanta Athletic Club. So I'd had a couple of close calls, and this was kind of like, okay, you know, enough is enough. This is it's my turn. I want this. You know, not that you can always make that happen, but that was the a positive feeling instead of the you know you have disappointments like I had in two years open. I can either make you or break you, and I think that helped make me uh, a whole lot better player and able to handle the pressure a whole lot, a whole lot better at the time. And John, you back up that win by winning the following week at the. American Optical Classic at Pleasant Valley Country Club, this time by two strokes over Raymond Floyd and Dr. Gil Morgan. And Raymond was the defending champion there. Talk about backing it up and winning in back-to-back weeks. Well, the, the funny thing about that, Chris, is you remember a guy by the name of Joe Braley? Does that bring a ring a bell? I do. He, yeah. yeah. Joe Joe had these light shafts. Hogan thought about it, too, when he had the apex shaft. You know, you get a lighter shaft over your head. You can swing it faster with more mass. You hit it further, maybe straighter, whatever. Well, Braley had the same kind of thing. Precision shafts was his deal. So after I won the PGA, Joe and I were pretty good friends. So he says, I want to, I want to try something. So I want you to, to come to, uh, my place. It's not that far from, uh, it's an hour from Pleasant Valley or whatever. He said, I want you to, uh, I want to check your, your shafts. I want to see what your shafts are like and stuff. He said, I won't have to take them out. I can do it this way or another. So I go over there, and the guy takes all my grips off, you know, and now he's trying checking the vibrations. And, you know, I had these grips on there. They had reminders in the back, and they were all on there perfect for the PGA. Well, now he doesn't have the same kind of grip. He's got, he's cord. He's got rubber. So now I'm going to the next tournament with, with uh, still got the same clubs, but I got different, different grips, different sizes. Uh, reminders not exactly in the same place, but a whole lot of confidence. And uh, I think that's why I won that week. I think I hit the ball again about as good as I ever had. I hit uh, a lot of greens at Pleasant Valley, which was a very, very long golf course. And a lot of long irons and stuff and played really great. Played uh, uh, head-on against uh, Raymond Floyd the last round. And uh, that stair is is pretty cold. Not quite a Hogan stair, but it's close enough. And, uh, you know, that's kind of a feather in your cap if you beat – beat Raymond Floyd head-to-head, and, and we had a good battle, but I, I was able to, uh, I think I buried the last hole to win by two. John, you played on the 1979 Ryder Cup team a year you guys won 17-11. to 11. How did the pressure of playing in the Ryder Cup compare to playing in the events you had played in during your college career, and then getting out on the PGA Tour, and then major championship pressure? How does Ryder Cup pressure compare to that? Oh, I think pressure is pressure. A lot of it's self-inflicted, but the thing is, it's really the first time I'd ever had a chance to represent my country. And uh when they played the national anthem, 
in the opening ceremonies and stuff before our first round. I mean, it, I was just shaking, uh, absolutely petrified. Uh, and, you know, just didn't want to make a mistake, didn't want to embarrass myself, didn't want to embarrass my country. Uh, I wanted to play the best golf I could play, and I wasn't playing very well at the time. And uh, just because of the PGA, winning the PGA Championship, uh, that was an automatic onto the Ryder Cup deal back then. So uh, it kind of had to have me. I don't think Billy Casper, our captain, really wanted to play me that much. In fact, I really kind of feel bad about it in a way because I played with uh, Hale Irwin uh, one, in one match, and I played with uh, Lee Elder in another. And I, uh, I don't think I did. I did them a disservice. I did not play very well, not on purpose. But uh, we, I lost. Uh, we lost both those matches. Uh, but I was fortunate enough to beat Brian Barnes uh, in the singles on Sunday. So uh, it wasn't a total loss. But it was probably the most pressure I've ever felt. It was uh, the most wonderful feeling to be on a team and to win a Ryder, a Ryder Cup. That was the first time the European team uh, was the European team. Uh, Savvy was there and uh, the whole deal. It was, it was really pretty neat. And John, you know, the U.S. teams, as I know you're well aware, dominated the Ryder Cup you know, all the way up to the mid-1980s. And then everything has sort of flipped on us. And now the, the European team has, has been the dominant team over the last 30-plus years. What, what do you think the U.S. team has got to do? We're just a couple weeks away from it this year. What do we need to do differently or better in order to uh, kind of flip it back in our favor? Enjoy it. Don't put too much pressure on yourself. Uh, I think these guys are all, I mean, the, the quality of play on all the tours in the world today are, are, is just incredible for, uh, for me to see. It's, it's fantastic what these guys can do. And they've, they've all got, uh, they've all got the talent to, to do this stuff. But I think our guys, uh, whether they realize it or not, try to put too much pressure on themselves and, uh, try to force things. I think the other guys, enjoy playing, and they enjoy the moment. I don't know that we enjoy the moment enough. John, just a couple more before I let you go. And kind of getting back to your your days uh, as, as a broadcaster, how did you walk the line between sharing what you saw and what you saw happening out on the golf course versus, you know, not alienating the guys that were your former peers? How did you stay away from that? Well, I had a pretty good guy that was was a, a sort of a mentor for me, and that was Dave Moore Jr. Okay, uh, Dave Moore when he worked for uh, for ABC and worked with Byron Nelson. I, I had an injury; I, I'd broken my hand uh, right before a couple of the Texas tournaments. And Dave came up to me and said, "How would you like to work at ABC?" And, and Terry Jastrow, the guy that beat me in the Texas State Junior way back in the day was actually a producer for ABC for these. And Terry says, you know, why don't you come come work a couple of tournaments and, and see if you can do it, see how you like it. So just listening to, to David Marr and how he approached things made it so much easier for me because he never threw anybody under the bus. And I tried I tried never to do that. I'm not going to call a bad shot a good shot or, or give a guy an excuse, but you always kind of got to give the guy an out. Something like, you know, that wasn't the best shot in this situation. But you got to remember, this guy is one of the best putters that's ever lived, or his short game is fabulous. He might even hold this. You give the guy an out. Instead of burying him, you give him an out. And that's what I always tried to do more than anything else. 
not try to sugarcoat anything, but not bury the guy. And John, you wrote a book about your time in the game, and it was titled Hogan's Boy, which I believe Sam Sneed used to refer to you as. Talk about your book and what people will learn when they pick it up. I wrote the book, Chris, for a couple of reasons. One, to see if I could write, because I really always wanted to do that. But I devoted so much time to golf that I didn't, um, I didn't really pursue it. So I felt like I was fortunate to play through several eras of the game, all the way from Nelson, Hogan, and Snead, all the way up to Tiger and Phil and everybody in between. Most of those guys were all, were good friends of mine. Somebody you didn't have to go through gatekeepers to talk to on the telephone. Uh, if you had a problem, you could talk to them about it. Uh, it was a great, uh, fellowship, a great, uh, fraternity to be a part of. Uh, and having been a major champion and so forth, I felt like, you know, I'd earned the right in a way to write a book about, about my experiences and to give people a little bit different view of, like I was talking about earlier, Ben Hogan being much more of, uh, of a kinder soul. To me, if he knew that you had a work ethic, if he knew you cared enough about it, Lee Trevino was the same way with me. So was Arnold Palmer. I mean, uh, Trevino taught me, taught me how to fade the golf ball. Uh, he taught me how to hit the little plated wedges around the green. Uh, all kinds of things like that. And, and great guys to play practice rounds. Don January, Littler, Miller Barber, uh, all took us under their wing, uh, and showed us how to do, how to play in pro, how to get into corporate pro-ams. Wear a coat and tie. Say yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. Learn how to do clinics. And because to give back to the game and to give back to the people that gave us the opportunity to play in front of them, the sponsors, the people that came out and watched us, the fans, you know, that's what, that's what it was all about. Build your product, build your name. And these guys all thought that, believed it, and lived it. And, uh, that's what this, my book's basically all about. It's not about a lot of teaching. But it's about how it was back in the day, and it was pretty darn cool. We traveled like it was like a circus, all right. And we all we all traveled, and we all did our stuff. We tried to play like heck and beat the other guy during the week. We were best of friends after that, and it, it stayed that way. Uh, it has through my whole lifetime, and and I wouldn't trade it for the world. John, expand on that just a, a little bit because I think that's something that's unique that that uh, not enough people are aware of is how the, the veterans out there on the PGA Tour would take you under their wing, and not just from, uh, you know, what it's like to be uh, on the PGA Tour and life on tour and stuff like that, but really teach you shots and teach you how to hit things. Um, I think we, we think of you guys as out there beating each other's brains, in the, like you said, and trying hard to compete and probably not wanting to, to share trade secrets, but it was really the opposite of that, wasn't it? It was. I think everybody everybody wanted to be somebody everybody else when everybody was playing at their best that's when you know you can really play you know when when you just when you beat the best with your best you know and and that's what these guys uh trevino for instance when he taught me how to hit the bladed wedge i came into the final hole of the tournament of champions one year playing with jack nicholas uh tied with johnny miller and uh johnny miller had parred the last hole so nicholas and i were in the last group and I, I hit it. It was at Lacoste in uh, Carlsbad. And I hit it on the green and tune. It just kind of rolls off the edge of the green up against the collar. And I'm putting with a bullseye back in the day. And I was never, I wasn't aware of or even thought about 
hitting a three wood out of there or, you know, bellying a wedge or anything like that. So I tried to putt it. The putter got hung up in the grass. I left it 10 feet short and missed the putt, lost the tournament by a shot. And uh, I think Trevino and John Brody, they were in the, the locker room, and uh, they were watching it on, on the tube. They came out, uh, or Trevino came out with three golf balls and a wedge and was waiting for me when I got out of the scoring tent and took me up to the putting green. He said, I want to show you something, man. He said, how did, how did you not know how to play that shot? He said, let me show you this. And he did. He showed me how to blade it because that way the ball comes out of the grass so much more consistently. It's almost like a putt. You almost have a chance to make it every time. And I never dreamed of anything like that. So these guys, they, they learned how to play by, by digging it. Well, I wasn't, uh, out of the dirt. Okay. If you want to put it that way, that people use that a lot, but that's the truth. Trial and error. And, uh, they discarded all the stuff that didn't work, but they figured out what did. And they were not afraid to share that with you if they thought that you would put good use, put it to good use. If you would work at it and you would use it. And, uh, but it's different today in, an, in, in another way, Chris. Think about this. All these youngsters, and there's nothing wrong with this. Don't get me wrong. They all have their teams. They all have a lot of their, their fathers or their teachers or pros that are taught their kids how to play. They don't really, they don't really need somebody to teach them how to play. They've learned how to play the game. They've played so much longer. They start out at, you know, almost infants. It seems like some of them. Uh, and, and they're turning tough by the time they get to college. Uh, they played great high school. By the time they get to college, they can really play. And then when they get on the tour, they're ready to go win. And they have their teams and they don't really need all this stuff. Uh, they have their camaraderie with their friends. They're still the same kind of deal out there. You still have the guys that, that run around together and stuff like that. It's great to see. But they don't, they don't, I don't know that they need the, the same kind of, of help that we, that we kind of did. It was a little bit different back then. We didn't, you were your own team, basically. John, before I let you go, how can our listeners stay up to date with you? Whether they're following you and it's online or it's on social media, where are you at? How can we stay up to date? Well, let's see. I'm at Hogan's Boy, uh, at uh on uh Twitter and uh Hogan's Boy Comcast dot net is an email and the book you can get through Amazon. Well John, it has been a lot of fun having you as part of the show. I feel like we've just scratched the surface of the stories and the the things that uh you got to experience along the way. I hope we get the privilege of having you back on the show again sometime. I'd love to do it, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. John, stay safe. All the best to you and your family. Like I said, look forward to catching up with you again soon. Okay. Appreciate it. Thanks. See you, John. That's the great John Mahaffey. And folks, I am 100% sincere. I feel like we have just scratched the surface of all the great stories and experiences that uh, John has had. Look forward to checking out his book again. It's called Hogan's Boy. Um, I'm sure it's great stories in there and a lot of great lessons and a lot of great things that uh, he experienced and that Mr. Hogan and uh, other greats of the game uh, taught him along the way. But um, from a great college career to an outstanding PGA Tour career to one of the all-time greats behind the mic, uh, John has certainly had a, a full golf career that uh, I'm sure there's a whole lot more to learn about and uh, a whole lot more stories that we can sit back and, and enjoy. So Looking forward to having John back on the show again, like I say, real soon. All right, folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Team. My sincere thanks go out again to Dottie Pepper and John Mahaffey 
for joining me tonight. Please check out our website, nextonthetea.net, to keep up to date with what our guest schedule looks like. And speaking of that, scheduled to join me next week are Golf Magazine Top 100 instructor Tim Cusick will be back with me. 1979 Bay Hill Classic champion Bob Byman will be here making his Next on the Tee debut. Another one of the Top 100 instructors, Shane LeBaron, will be making a return trip. He's always fantastic. And top course designer and former PGA Tour pro John Fott will also be making his next On the Tee debut. So it's going to be a great show, folks. I hope you come back and be a part of it with us. Folks, you can stream this show as a podcast on a number of great podcasting sites and apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Pandora has jumped on board, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, AudioBoomPlayer.fm, and Podcast.co. And folks, if you have another favorite podcasting site and app, just go to the search bar, type in Next on the T. I'm sure we're on there as well. Folks, thanks again for choosing to listen to this show tonight. I really appreciate the fact that you continue to make Next on the T a part of your golfing content. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.